Hey guys, happy new year. Tomorrow is 2024. Can you believe we got here this quickly? Um, tomorrow we get to kick off our Life 260 journal reading plan where we're going to read through the entire New Testament as a church family in one calendar year simply by reading one chapter every weekday through this year. We get to kick that off tomorrow. Uh, if you didn't get your journal yet and you want to start the reading plan tomorrow, super easy. Uh, just go to the website, lompokefoursquare.com, hit the resource tab, and the reading plan and the journals are there if you want them. Love starting the new year with a specific spiritual discipline, right? Time with God. I want to talk to you about another spiritual discipline that I'm excited about kicking off the new year with. You ready? I want to talk to you about fasting. Yep. And right now, laptops are closing, TVs are turning off, and phones are going down. Listen, stay with me. I know fasting is not a topic that guys get super excited about, but I think God is getting ready to do something really significant in 2024, and he's inviting us for a season of preparation, uh, listening. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Now, you and I both know uh, that of all of the spiritual disciplines, fasting is the least popular uh, in, in the Western culture. But that has not always been the case. Up until about 200 years ago, uh, the church fasted twice a week, every week. It was part of their natural way of being with God. But a couple hundred years ago, man, it started to get out of step with contemporary culture and, and pursuit of gratification. And so a really dynamic way of engaging with the Holy Spirit kind of went by the wayside. And I want to make a case this morning with you for re-engaging it as a spiritual practice and want to invite you to consider setting some time aside in the month of January to fast and pray with me and our larger Foursquare Church family. But we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. I want to talk to you about what fasting is and what it isn't. And I'm going to be borrowing heavily from the teaching of a pastor named John Mark Comer. I just really believe in giving credit where credit is due. So shout out to him. Guys, there are spiritual disciplines that I really love. Um, I love fellowship, love communion, um, love sharing of meals together. That's a spiritual discipline. I don't know if you knew that. Love reading the word. And there are others that I'm just not naturally such a fan of. Uh, fasting obviously falls into that category. But I found that those things that don't come naturally or easily to me are often places where God is inviting me into significant breakthrough. And I think the same may be the case for you. I want to make a couple of quick observations about fasting and then talk with you about how we engage with God in the process. Um, fasting is not a hunger strike. Uh, fasting is not a way that we manipulate God. It's not something we do to get something from God because he feels real bad for how much we're suffering. Um, it's an ancient Christian discipline where we go without food to break the power of the flesh and to actually feed on the power of the Holy Spirit. We starve the flesh, not the body, but the flesh, those, those unhealthy appetites that are destructive to us and contrary to God's will for us. Uh, the things that Pastor Caden talked about in Galatians 5. And, and as we starve these things that would desire to rule us, we actually draw strength in our spirit by the Spirit of God. We're drawing strength from God himself. John chapter 4, uh, if you've got your Bibles, this Jesus has been talking with a Samaritan woman. Uh, the disciples have gone into town because they were hungry, interestingly enough, uh, and they come back to engage Jesus. And it says in verse 31, 
Uh, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is fasting. And when he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about, he's saying, as I am fasting, it is changing the source of my strength from the natural to the supernatural. And in choosing not to sustain himself with physical food, but rather by the Spirit of God, he is actually and literally drawing strength from God himself. Now, when you and I engage in the practice of fasting, sometimes we find this is not a really easy practice. Uh, and that's because we're picking a fight with our flesh. We're not doing something that comes easily or naturally to us. Uh, Richard Foster says, fasting reveals the things that control us those things in us that don't want to die. So sometimes we might feel like we want to give up quickly on fasting because it feels like a conflict. And in fact, it is, which is why it leads to such significant breakthrough. I want to lean into this practice in 2024. John Mark Comer says there's three basic reasons why we fast. The first is the one we just mentioned. It's to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. The second is to pray, and the third is to identify with the poor, to stand in solidarity with the poor. And what I want to do this morning is I want to uh, focus particularly on the relationship between prayer and fasting. John Piper says that fasting is a way of praying with our whole body, where the entirety of our being is engaged in a conversation with God, expressing a hunger for him and for him to move in our lives. Uh, Acts chapter 13, let's jump over there, looking uh, in verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What I want you to see in this particular passage is the, the pairing, the partnership between fasting and praying. Uh, you can pray without fasting. Uh, we do this all the time as we pray for dinner. We're obviously not engaged in fasting. You can also fast without praying. But as I read scripture, it seems that when you pair them together, something powerful takes place, almost as if one is amplifying the other. I said earlier, fasting isn't a hunger strike. It's not something we do to twist God's arm until we get our way. We don't have to do that. Um, we're sons and daughters of the king. But God does, in Scripture, seem to indicate a particular receptiveness or a willingness to engage when we come to him wholeheartedly. Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13 says, it's God speaking. He says, you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I'll listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So when you and I set aside the very real appetites of the body in order to focus on praying, we're seeking God in that moment with our entire heart, with all of our being. And scripture says that God moves in response to that. And so if that's what fasting is, I, I want to talk to you about five ways that we pray, we pair, excuse me, or partner of fasting and prayer in scripture. Here's the first one. 
We fast and pray to repent before God. This is found in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7. Now, remember, you might be going, John, you started with fasting and now you're on repenting. Um, this is sounding like less and less fun. If you look at it through a natural lens, I can see how you might feel that way. But when you, when you remember that fasting and praying engages us with God and we draw from his own strength, and everything that Jesus invites us to in Scripture, whether it is repentance or any other activity, is for our benefit and for our edification. Edification means to build up. So these are opportunities for us to rely on the Spirit of God, to engage with the Spirit of God, and to draw nearer to the Spirit of God. So listen to this. This is 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, it's if you're repenting, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered there, drew water, poured it out before the Lord, fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Samuel says, if you're repenting, if you're returning to the Lord, then fast and pray. First uh, Kings 21 tells the story of King Ahab, uh, hands down the most wicked king really in the Old Testament. And he knew the consequences of his sin was going to catch up with him. He chose to fast and pray, and God withheld judgment from him and his family. And Leviticus 23, probably the most popular example, verses 26 through 32, are the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, it was a day once a year where the nation of Israel would gather and they would fast and they would pray and they would confess their sins that they had committed throughout the year. Um, Orthodox Jews still do this on Yom Kippur. One day a year, they gather and they confess their sins. Now, our current culture gives very little room, very little space for the practice of confession. When, when we sin, when we do something wrong, we, we tell God we're sorry in our minds, um, and then we kind of move on and try not to think about it, just leave it behind us. But because sometimes we haven't really dealt with it, um, we find ourselves living with kind of this hangover of guilt or shame or even insecurity. And that's not something that God ever wants for us. So this idea of repenting, and in particular, repenting and fasting, fasting is a way that we repent well, that we grieve over the sin that we've committed that has grieved the heart of God. It's like, it's like we, we let, for a moment, not a way that endures, but for a moment, we let the weight of our sin settle on our own heart but not that it would remain there. We, we do it so that we can also feel Jesus lift the full weight of that sin off of us. We're not, we're not performing penance. We know that we have been forgiven, that Christ took all of our sins to the cross. What we're actually doing as we fast and pray as an act of repentance is we're investing in the relationship. We're, we're engaged in a, a relational interaction. Some of you have parents. Think of how you taught your kids to apologize to one another. They, they get in a fight over a toy, something. You say, Bobby, you need to apologize to Susie. And they go, sorry. And they want to be done, right? 
And you go, nope, that's not how we do this. And you get them together. Uh, maybe at a table, they've got to be eye to eye. You need eye contact. You, you have to name the offense. You, you have to ask for forgiveness. You, you have to offer forgiveness. And then if you really want to drive your kids nuts, right, you, you make them hug it out. We do these things to help them move forward in a healthy relationship. And fasting and repenting is the same thing. Now, here's the next one. I want to talk to you for a second out of 1 Samuel about the relationship between fasting and grief. Uh, in Scripture, we learn that, that we can actually fast to grieve, that it can bring us to a place of health and wholeness. Grieving is not something we do very well in Western culture. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, uh, Saul has just lost a battle. And he and his sons have been killed, and the Philistines have actually taken and hung their body on the wall. 1 Samuel 31 Verse 11, it's the wall of their city. Verse 11 says, When the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went at night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the walls of Bethshen, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Saul is killed, his enemy displays his body, his people go recover his body, they, they burn the body and, and then bury the bones, which is an ancient Hebrew burial rite, and then they fast for seven days. They're not asking God for anything, they're not repenting for anything. This is a Hebrew way of processing grief in the ancient world. We, we see it also in the book of Nehemiah. If you want to flip over with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 2. Nehemiah writes that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, what's going on in our homeland? They said to me, the remnant there in the province, excuse me, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and in shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. His response, verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. His response to bad news, to tragedy, to trauma was to abstain from food and grieve. This is the polar opposite of how we deal with pain and trauma and tragedy in Western culture. We go straight to the pantry and get a bag of chips, right? Nothing helps us deal with sorrow like potato chips or ice cream. Let's, let's meet us in the carbs and we're going to be okay. When, when someone experiences trauma or loss, one of the first things we do is, can, can we care for you? Can we bring you a meal? It's just one of the ways we've learned culturally to respond to grief. But in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, in, in the culture of the Bible, they knew how to grieve well. We don't do that. We go from the pantry to anger, which is a stage of grief, but, but, but venting our anger is not a healthy way of processing grief, whether we do it in social media or in person. I, I don't think many of us have ever learned, one, to value grief because there is value in it or how to do it properly. Anger is not grieving. Numbing out isn't grieving. What, what if, what if when we experience tragedy, and we don't know what to do with our feelings. We choose to fast and pray in order to process our grief with God. To be sad and sorrowful. Experience pain in God's presence. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted 
and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Grieving is an act of worship and of intercession. It's an act of prayer. It's, it's an invitation for God to meet you in that place. The entire book of Lamentations is just that. So we, we fast and pray to repent, to, to grieve. Both of those are a journey to wholeness. But we also fast to cry out to God in moments of crisis. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20 tells the story of King Jehoshaphat. Let me read you just part of it. The story is verses 1 all the way through the end of the chapter. I'm just going to read you a couple verses. But it says, After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and a bunch of other people whose names I can't pronounce came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in En Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid, set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Here's what's happening. There are multiple armies marching against Judah. Genocide is hours away. These armies are coming, and Judah does not have the military might, manpower, or alliances to stand against them. They are about to be wiped out. There is nothing they can do about it, and they know there is nothing they can do about it. So in response to the news that they are all about to die, Jehoshaphat proclaims a fast for the entire country. Then he, he begins to pray, and at the end of the prayer, he prays this thing that is just, it's such a beautiful thought. He says, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We have come to the end of ourselves, our ability, our capacity to meet this challenge. We are fasting, we are praying, and we are looking to you to do what we can't do on our own. We need a miracle. And God intervenes, the nation is saved. The same is true in the story told in the book of Esther. Once again, uh, God's people are facing genocide. They're facing annihilation. Esther hears from her uncle that she needs to go before the king, but she hasn't been invited, so she's putting her own life at risk. She tells her uncle, go gather the Jews together and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. She says, I'll go into the king. If I perish, I perish. God has to move. We need a miracle. We're powerless before our enemy and only a move of God will save us. And he does. This is the testimony of scripture. But if you know your history, it's also the story of the modern era. Many of you are familiar with the story Dunkirk came out years ago. It tells the story of the rescue of the British expeditionary forces off the beaches of Dunkirk in 1940. Um, they were trapped there. The beginning of World War II, the French thought the Maginot Line would hold longer. They made some poor military decisions. So German, the German army, the armored forces are coming to meet them on the beach. They can't get off the beach, and so 340,000 soldiers are in danger of annihilation. On May 27th, the movie Dunkirk tells the story of the rescue of that army from the beach across the water back to England, May 27th. Beautiful day in our history. What you may not know and what the movie doesn't include is what happened on May 26th. May 26th, the day before Dunkirk, King George proclaimed a national day of prayer and fasting in the United Kingdom. And millions of people turned out, went to churches to pray and fast, asking for a move of God. There was a line out of Westminster Abbey a quarter of a mile long for people waiting to get in and pray. That was May 26th. On May 27th, three things took place. One, Churchill put out a call for everyone with small boats to go across to rescue the army. Secondly, 
there was a powerful storm that came in all along the entire coast of France, which grounded the German Air Force. The Luftwaffe couldn't fly and couldn't strafe the men waiting on the, on the beaches of Dunkirk. And third, history tells us an eerie calm came over the English Channel. And so those small boats, which weren't built for this, were able to get across, and they pulled 338,000 people off the beaches of Dunkirk. Now, you and I or others could look back and go, hmm, what a coincidence. How great is that? But the British who lived through that era, they didn't call it Dunkirk. They called it God's miracle at Dunkirk. They understood that God had moved in response to their intercession. Churchill, seeing the 338,000 soldiers come off the beach, called it a miracle of deliverance. There are moments, there are times in our lives where we need a flat-out miracle and only God can bring the breakthrough, and those are moments that we fast and we pray. There's, a, there's another one, and th this, one may, this one may unsettle you a little bit. Um, we fast and pray to ask God to relent or to change his mind about something. And you may think, how, how can my prayer change God's mind, or encourage him to do something different than what he had set out to do. Stay with me, because I'm going to show you in Scripture. Your prayers are powerful, and they are effective. You and I have a personal, interactive, and dynamic relationship with God, and prayer is one of the ways that we relate to each other, and we move things forward. So when you pray, some things happen, which also means when you don't pray, some things don't happen. Jesus in the garden getting ready to go to the cross. We, we celebrate the part of the prayer that says, not my will, but yours be done. But that's not the whole prayer. The prayer starts with Jesus saying to the Father, if there is any other way to go about this, God, Father, if there is any other way we can do this, I would like you to change your mind and do something differently. Jonah, chapter 3, beginning in verse... Uh, verse 1. Um, you know this story, right? God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Um, Jonah doesn't want to go, gets in a boat, gets in a storm, gets in a fish, winds up in Nineveh. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So it took three days to walk through the city. Jonah began to go into the city, got a day's journey in, and he called out, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The passage goes on to say, the king says, nobody's going to eat high, low, male, female, or even our animals. Why? Verse 9, who knows, they say, in response, God may turn and relent, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah goes to Nineveh, preaches the shortest message in the history of messages. You got 40 days, God's going to destroy you. They hear it, they believe it, they begin to fast. Uh, they put on sackcloth, which is a way of saying they humble themselves. And it says, when God saw that they had turned from their wickedness, he relented. When they had turned from their ways. 
the phrase turn from their ways is the Hebrew word naham, to turn away. But then it says God relented, which is also the word naham. So there is this exchange with them where they nahamed, and in response, God nahams as well. They changed their mind, and God changed his. So in Scripture, we, we repent or we change our mind in regard to sin, and then God repents in respect to judgment. So when Jesus in the garden is saying, Father, let this cup pass from me, he's saying, Father, I want you to naham. I want you to turn. I want you to change. Now, that was not Christ's role. He was, he was meant to go to the cross. And so he prayed the second prayer. If you're not going to naham, if you're not going to relent, even so, not my will, but yours be done. So the first part of his prayer was to change God's mind. The second part of his prayer is to be surrendered to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. I, I want to give you one more. One more reason we fast and pray, and then I want to talk to you about some practical things, the, the how-to. I want to go back to where we started in Acts chapter 13, because the, the last reason we fast and pray is to know God's mind, to discern God's will um, about a decision we need to make or what he is doing in this particular space and time. So Acts 13 again, the first three verses. Um, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, we read this, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Fasting and praying have this ability as we do them together to create this space where it focuses our mind's ability to hear, to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit. So as this group of believers are worshiping and fasting in that time and space, while they are fasting, while they are worshiping, God breaks into their reality with a specific message or a specific assignment. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have for them. And immediately they respond to what God wants to do. They don't know why. They don't know what's going to happen. But in this moment, God is inviting them to engage in an act of obedience in response to his word and his will that turns out to be changing the trajectory of the church from Jew only to Jew plus Gentile. They don't know that. They are simply worshiping and fasting, and God breaks into that moment gives them something that they are to do. You and I are here today because a group of believers heard God speak as they fasted and prayed. They, they created space and clarity to hear from God. So as we look forward into 2024, what things might God want to do that are not currently in our thinking? What small steps might he be inviting us to take that are going to have significant impact or major ramifications in our lives, the life of our church, or our community? We may not know unless we set aside time to create space and time to clearly hear and discern the voice of God. Scripture says that we see in part and we know in part, but God knows absolutely and in totality. And he wants to do, Scripture teaches us, exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. 
And so I want to invite you to join me for 21 days of prayer and fasting as we join our larger Foursquare family from January 8th to the 28th to pray, to seek God, to engage in all five of these kinds of prayers as we fast. Now, now you, may, you may be new to the idea of fasting. Maybe it's something that you haven't done before, and you're like, I don't know if I can do that. Like, I, I need a coach. I'm not going to remember all these things. Here's what we're able to do because we're doing this together with our larger Foursquare family. The theme this year is praying the word. And so if you go to the website, lompokefoursquare.com, you're probably on it right now watching this message. There's a banner across the top. And if you click on that banner, it will direct you to a number of resources. One of those is an opportunity to sign up and get a daily reminder of a prayer focus a scripture that's informing the prayer focus, and a moment of personal introspection. And so if you jump over there as soon as we're done, it's one of the ways that we can coach one another and be engaged together in this process. What you need to do is decide, first, if you're going to fast, and secondly, how you're going to fast. Let me tell you this. There is no command to fast in scripture. You don't have to do it. It is not commanded anywhere. You don't have to fast if you don't want to. There is an expectation. Jesus was teaching his disciples, and he said, when you fast, and he said, do it this way. So there's an opportunity, there's an invitation, there's an expectation, but there's no command. If, if fasting is something that you don't feel like you can do at this point, okay. But I want to encourage you maybe, maybe to take a step and stretch yourself. So the first question is, am I going to fast? Second is, what am I going to fast? Am I going to fast a meal? Um, am I going to fast soda? Am I going to fast coffee? Um, am I ph physiologically not able to adjust my diet, so I'm going to fast maybe social media? You decide what you're going to fast. And then, then when? Am I going to do it every day, once a week, uh, in this process? Um, here's what I'm probably going to do, because I'm, I'm excited about the 260 journal. So in the morning, um, I'll be doing my 260 journal devotions. And then I'll probably fast through breakfast and lunch. And whenever I hear, feel a, a hunger pain, that's going to be a, a prompt for me to pray. But when I get to lunch, time that I, I usually have set aside to run over to Floriano's, grab a burrito, eat, um, I'm going to use that time to work through the material for the day, the prayer focus, and trust that Jesus is going to meet me in those moments. So um, this is what we're doing, guys. This is what I invite you into. And remember, um, it's for this reason. There may be some things that some of us need to repent for to truly be free. Some of us may need Jesus to walk us through areas in which we're experiencing loss and we're grieving. Some of us may need Jesus to come through with an absolute miracle because there's no other way this is going to work. And some of us, all of us, need to be able to hear and discern the word and the will of God. Fasting doesn't sound like fun. I understand that. But it is an invitation for spiritual development and breakthrough in our relationship with God. And whatever we sow, whatever we invest in our relationship with Jesus, we harvest, Scripture says, far more abundantly than what we invest. It's going to be so good if you do. So from the 8th to the 28th, information on the website, Life 260, 
kicks off tomorrow. I'm excited to grow in God with you this year. Uh, can't wait to see you next week. I just, I want to speak a blessing over you as we together as a family look forward into this next year. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless you. Can't wait to see you next week. Have a happy new year.